Welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. Hi, this is Adam Huss, and my guest for this episode is Dr. Andrew Smith, the COO and Chief Scientist for the Rodale Institute. When I started my winery here in South Central Los Angeles, I knew that the number one priority for it would be that all of our wines would be made with organically grown grapes. To better explain why organic is so important to wine, I started doing a lot of research on the benefits of organic viticulture. Like so many things in life, this led me on a journey, and that journey took me full circle back to my childhood, where I discovered that I had grown up in the same state with the nonprofit that was the birthplace of the organic movement, and that has been the global leader at the forefront of the science behind and promotion of organic agriculture ever since. The Rodale Institute has conducted decades-long comparative studies on the results of organic farming versus conventional farming. They have and continue to accumulate the science-based data that can answer some of the biggest questions facing our world today. Questions like, what kind of agriculture is the most productive during droughts? And what kind of agriculture sequesters more carbon? What kind of agriculture produces the most nutritious food? And can we feed Earth's billions of human inhabitants without using chemical fertilizers and pesticides? As well as, can you use marijuana as a vineyard cover crop? Okay, maybe that one's not quite as important as some of those other questions, but don't you want to know? In this interview with Dr. Andrew Smith, you'll come to realize that the work he is doing at the Rodale Institute is about more than just improving agriculture around the planet. It's about human survival. And there is hope. Enjoy. Dr. Andrew Smith, thank you so much for talking with me today. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So you are the COO and chief scientist for the Rodale Institute, right? Yes. Okay, so I uh, didn't mention this before, but I'm actually from Pennsylvania, born and raised. Um, but I had to come all the way across the country and start a winery and a podcast about organic wine to discover the Rodale Institute was in my backyard my entire childhood. Where um, in Pennsylvania were you raised? I'm, I'm from a little town called Fayetteville, which is uh, near Gettysburg, sort of west okay. of Gettysburg. Yeah. Um, south, south Central. Chambersburg is the bigger town where I went to high school. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, so, and I, I, mean, I was just thrilled to discover you guys and wish I had known about you <laughs> sooner. Of course, I, you know, my priorities were different as a kid, but um, you are doing, you are basically where organic began in this country. Is that, is that accurate? Can you talk a little bit about the history of the Rodale Institute and what it does now? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the Rodale Institute, the namesake of Rodale Institute is J.I. Rodale, who came to Emmaus, Pennsylvania, because him and his brother, who were manufacturing switches during the Great Depression, were looking for um, a cheaper place to, to manufacture their switches than Brooklyn, New York at the time. And when J.I. came, he decided, I'm going to, I should have a farm. He was, he was at this point successful with their business, but knew nothing about farming. Um, but if you know Emmaus, even today, it's surrounded by farmland. Um, sure. even though it's very close to Allentown and some other, you know, population centers. Um, but he knew nothing about agriculture. So he went to the land grant universities and said, well, tell me something about agriculture. What do I do? And, uh, you know, he said, they said, well, here's how, here's all the inputs you need, you know, different chemicals, different fertilizers, but J.I. wasn't a farmer. He wasn't 
looking to make money from farming. His whole goal was to improve him, his health and the health of his family by producing nutritious food. And so to him as an industrialist, he knew that if he used high quality products, he would get a high quality, you know, a high quality switch. If he used lower qualities, it would be less expensive. Um, but he knew that the quality wouldn't be as good. And so when he applied the same logic to agriculture, he thought, well, it sounds like we're trying to use the cheapest inputs possible in order to get the, the least expensive product, which probably means you're going to have the least amount of quality. And to him, quality was nutrition. Um, so he, he started to go down a different road saying that, thinking there's got to be a different way to produce food. I want to produce food that's healthy. Um, you know, to him, it was the thought was if you put these toxins in the chemical or in the soil, um, how they then turn into making me healthier just didn't really add up. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so he found people like um, Sir Albert Howard and Lady Belfour in England who were talking about things like artificial manures, um, which were really synthetic fertilizers. And uh, Sir Albert Howard, who was uh, working with compost, what we now know as compost and its benefits, um, and really started exploring that idea of non-chemical agriculture. And on his farm, his 42-acre farm in Emmaus, started doing some research. And then it was his son, Bob Rodale, who really said, you know, we need to take a more serious approach because while organic farming, which, which really the word organic came from when J.I. Rodale uh, started the Organic Gardening and Farming magazine um, that he published uh, for the better part of the 20th century. Um, and that's where we started to get that term organic as a, as a common part of the vernacular of non-chemical-based agriculture. Um, and his son, Bob, said we need to get a little more serious around the research because the people that are embracing this are gardening and they're doing it on a small scale, but they were aware of many people around the country doing organic agriculture on a larger scale, um, but there was not a lot of science around whether or not you could do it or the benefit of organic agriculture, or could you get yields equivalent to, um, you know, what we use the term conventional agriculture to mean, you know, kind of the standard practices of the day, you know, can you get yields comparable to a conventional agricultural system? So in 1972, we moved to Kutztown, Pennsylvania, which is not about 15, 20 minutes away from Emmaus, where there, we have a 333 acre uh, campus and we that's dedicated to research, education, and outreach around regenerative organic agriculture. Great. And what are the what are the main sort of I guess things that like the the mission statement or or the the main uh, emphases that you're focusing on at the Rodale Institute in terms right. of right? Yeah. Sure. Our mission is is through organic leadership, we improve the health and well being of people and the planet. Um, so it's not just about you know. Can we have more organic agriculture? Our goal is to make people healthier, to make communities healthier, um, and to make the planet and the environment healthier. But we think that you know the way to do that is through a non-chemical and a regenerative approach that improves all of those things instead of degrades them over time. Right. Yeah. I mean, do you ever feel like your main job is trying to get people to care about dirt? <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, you know, I guess sometimes you you have to remember what circles you you run in. I mean, you you uh, I can spend all my day talking with folks that are completely like minded and forget yeah. that the rest of the world um, where they're so busy, they're 
they just yeah. they're they're trying to do their job, get home, feed their families, uh, get to bed, get up, and do it all over again. Um, luckily, as a, you know, we have a robust communications and marketing team, so a lot of times it doesn't uh, that task doesn't fall on me. But yeah, it does seem you know we're at we're at this now seventy years, not me personally, but for me probably twenty years or more. Uh, it does seem like it's pushing a rock up a hill. And you were still at only about 1% of total farmland um, as certified organic in the United States. Um, it's, it's higher than that in Europe and other countries. Um, but it yeah. certainly seems like people are taking notice of the way food's produced and the impact that that can have on their health. Yeah, it's, an, it's a really exciting but also interesting time in history. And, and I was going to ask you about that. I mean, you are the chief scientist for the Rodale Institute, and it seems like that position was created, you know, in the last few years, which is, you know, at a time where we're seeing some segments, at least of the population, you know, having a very skeptical view of science or almost like a, like a scientific backlash. And I wonder, can you talk about the timing of be, you know, this chief scientist position and, and why the Rodale Institute thought it was important to have a chief scientist as a spokesperson for, for the Institute? Well, you know, I don't, and I don't know, you know, the chief scientist is just a title. As far as I know, there's almost always been somebody that's been in the research director position. Okay. Um, we've always had scientists on staff. Um, so there's always been a, a focus on, on science, um, putting rigorous science behind uh, organic agriculture. Um, but I do think we, we're at, we have a unique advantage is if you, if you ask people who they trust the most, um, they trust scientists and the only people they trust more than scientists are farmers. Um, huh. so we're kind of farmers and scientists at the same time. Um, so you would think that people can trust, um, the things that we're, that we're putting out there. Well, yeah, and I think some of the things that you're doing is are truly incredible, and I think that's we that's a great segue to just jump into that. Which I mean, in terms of trustworthiness, you guys have been doing a farming systems trial that I think is unique in the world for since 1981. You've been doing a side by side comparison of organic and conventional agriculture, and so you have factual data, comparative data for almost 40 years now. Uh, to address some of these really big questions that I think are being debated and argued in agriculture right now. And can you talk about some of the, some what that farming systems trial is, is generally and, and some of the things that, some of the findings that you are, you're finding? Yeah, sure. It started in 1981, as you mentioned, and what's, what's probably important to note is in 1980, the USDA put out a report saying that there actually is a lot of people across the country uh, doing organic agriculture. There's no program for organic. So you didn't, there was no certified organic, but there's a, people on large acres, 300 acres, a thousand acres, um, producing food without the use of chemicals. And they mm. recommended that a greater amount of, uh, investment in research be devoted to this form of agriculture. Um, the U S government had virtually little to no investment in organic agriculture for the next 20 uh, years or so. Um, but Rodale Institute and Bob Rodale specifically got to work the next year um, in 1981, created the Farming Systems Trial, which is a side-by-side -side comparison of organic and conventional field crop production. Um, and it was really started to, to really answer that question. Can you produce food um, using organic inputs that have yields that are comparable to our conventional or standard 
or chemical approach. And what they did is they looked at it and they said, okay, we're going to take a livestock system because we recognize that a lot of uh, farmers, what they're, the way they can grow crops effectively without chemicals is they can recycle uh, nutrients like manures um, back into the back into their system. Uh, there was a legume system, which is one that had, had, had literally has had no fertilizer put down in the 40 years. And it's looking to it really want to answer the question, could you use leguminous plant-based uh, fertility measures such as clovers and vetches and alfalfa as uh, sources of fertility? And then there was the what we call the conventional, which is the standard approach where we're using uh you know, soluble salt-based fertilizers and insecticides, um, and all of those these recommendations for what are the appropriate uh, things to use, all come from uh, university extension. Then, and it's the same recommendations they would make to all farmers across the state on you know what seed varieties, what chemicals are the appropriate, and what rates there are appropriate. So those are the three systems. Um, so what? Are there, so there's the a sort of a composted version that's organic, a mm-hmm. just a uh, just cover crop version, the the the, right. the legumes, right, and then the conventional, right. And, and you guys aren't like shorthanding. Obviously, you're dedicated to organic values, but you're not shorthanding that conventional system. You're 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 going by the book by what you're getting recommendations straight from a university, and and that that changes over time as new things are found and new practices are adopted even in conventional you're you're changing that you're not still just spraying ddt on everything from whatever right right yeah we have i mean we're using seed coatings which are the the majority of farmers are using and you know fungicide and insecticide seed coatings um in 2008 gmos were added into the to the conventional systems not the organic systems because they're gmos or genetically modified organisms uh, aren't allowed in organic production. Um, right. So we now make repeated sprays of uh, herbicides over top of those crops throughout the season so we can have uh, highly effective weed control, um, different herbicides or different herbicide herbicide cocktail mixtures are recommended. So the we, we have a weed scientist who makes recommendations on what, what the right things to use are. If we recognize that there are certain in, uh, weeds that are resistant. Then he or she can make recommendations on what you know, in, what herbicides would help mitigate that issue. Um, so, you, so you're you know. as careful with the conventional uh, plots as you are with the organic plots. Like, it, I, I want to emphasize that because it, I think it could be easy to imagine short-handing the thing that you want to show is lacking in some way or that you're you know that you you're trying to you know it it could i could see skepticism around that but yeah just emphasizing that you guys clearly are being very careful uh, well if if anything we're shortchanging the organic because both of the systems in the organic are a closed system so we're we're you you're we're utilized we're composting dairy or cattle manure that we assume a farm would have, and then putting that back into the soil, and in the in the legume system where we applied no fertilizer, so uh, we haven't really had any outside inputs. You know, we could certainly go and buy fertilizers, organic fertilizers, and a lot of organic farmers are buying at least some organic fertilizers. Um, and so that's one of the questions we have now after forty years: 
is should we make any small changes to the systems to reflect what farmers are doing now? Because certainly an organic farming farmer today is a little bit different than an organic farmer 40 years ago. There's there's more tools available to organic farmers than, than other farmers had 40 years ago. Yeah. And I mean, just, I imagine just combining those two, which is probably some, something that people would likely do. They, they would use both the legumes uh, for, for fertility, as well as use a, a animal-based compost or things like that. If they had access to animals on the farm, they would, they wouldn't be doing one or the other. And so you'd have that a sort of a double whammy, I'm guessing, right? Right. And we did something similar to that at a new trial. It's called the Watershed Impact Trial. It's about an hour south of us on the Stroud Preserve. Since you're from Pennsylvania, maybe you know Westchester, yeah. Pennsylvania. Sure. Um, yeah. Where we now have, we put f- field scale plots at scale um, or, you know, field scale plots at slope, I should say. So we have like an 8 to 12% slope, I believe, on those fields. And we can start to measure um, things like erosion potential, as well as with the work with help from the Stroud Water Research Center, um, we actually start to measure water quality. So we can start to see the impacts of both the organic and the conventional systems, and how the nutrients and chemicals that are in those systems might ultimately lead to the uh, water that ends up in the streams down downstream from the fields. So we're excited yeah. about that project, but that's an example where we're not assuming a livestock operation. So we don't, don't have a perennial phase where we're growing forage for animals. It's all field crop, um, but we've included compost as a component and all the cover crops that we normally use uh, in the organic system. Wow, that's great. I, I mean, I as I was reading about some of what you're doing, and just already the the findings, which you know, I want to ask you about next. But I mean, part of well, let's just start with that. What are you finding? Like, what over the forty years? What are some conclusions that you feel pretty strong about making uh, from the trial? Right, and I think that you know, you said forty years. That's really the benefit. We really see ourselves as being able to sustain a trial like this and and others that we've started. Um, because we're not set in a typical university system where, you know, I have two or three years to do a field study, a couple of years to do a lab study and get my PhD. Um, we, you know, we can look at what happens over a decade or more decades. And it isn't surprising to soil scientists, but the first four years, um, we saw no difference in the soils. Um, the conventional systems out yielded the organic systems for the first four years. Although I would say it also, there's a lot of interest right now in transitioning. So if we go back and look at those four years, we can see uh, some of the crops like soybeans actually did fine during the first four years, but crops like corn, which are uh, dependent on high levels of nitrogen, uh, suffered during those first four years. But from year five till today, there's been no difference in yields uh, between the livestock-based system and the conventional system. Um, in the legume system, um, while it has lower yields, it wasn't, you know, I wouldn't, it wasn't substantially lower. Um, when we apply an economic analysis, um, because the legume system is the lowest input system as well, um, both the legume and the livestock system come out far and ahead of the conventional system from a, from a farm profitability standpoint. 
Right. Yeah. So that, I mean, those are some of the other metrics that you're measuring beyond yields, right? Is like the amount of the cost of it, the, the sort of carbon footprint of each system. And, and those findings are, are probably even more stuff. So it's, it's great. Like we're equal on yield for the most part. Um, especially when you're adding the, the animal compost, the, the animal waste compost, but in terms of all the other f- measurements, clearly organic seems to be advantageous in a lot of ways. Yeah, I, th- I think what really tips the scale um, is really higher organic matter and higher carbon in the organic systems. We and one of the reasons for the different for not seeing differences between the two systems is that uh, during drought periods or during low rainfall periods. The organic systems have always outyielded the conventional system. So if you have a perfect environment where you get the right rainfall and you get the fertilizer on right um, and everything works the way you want it to, yeah, the conventional system outyields the organic. But what we've seen, especially with uh, you know global warming and that there's a potential for uh, climate uncertainty, um, and in our in over this 40-year period. We've seen many periods of drought or low rainfall, and we attribute that increase in yield to uh, higher levels of carbon in the soil, which lead to greater water holding capacity, and which lead to greater soil structure, which allows more infiltration of water into the soil and less soil being run off um, so that when the crop needs it, it's there. And that's really what started to spark our interest in uh, working with Stroud Water Research Center, who are experts in soil, or I'm sorry, water relationships, um, because we can start, we're, we're digging a little bit deeper into this, uh, the ability of the soils to to hold moisture and, and to function, and to maybe even clean our soils so that we improve our env- in the environment. Yeah, I think, I mean, the idea that the organic crops resist drought better and are more productive during drought times has to be interesting considering what we're seeing <laughs> in climate in, in temperatures uh, in summers and the the wild weather that we're having I, it has to be making some people take notice are you seeing some people waking up to that a little bit uh, you know some of that stuff triggering people that otherwise wouldn't have been interest interested or would have been skeptical or just would have you know wanted to stick with the status quo now sort of being like well maybe you should take a second look at that well probably just about everybody yeah okay you know (laughs) you know soil scientists i mean soil scientists have always recognized that improving or increasing carbon in the soil helped improve the soil it held it holds on to nutrients um it holds on to moisture it provides a source of uh, food for microbes in the soil so every soil scientist i don't think you're going to find one that would say that that more carbon in the soil is better um or you know, or that would, would disagree that having more carbon in the soil is better. And there's been plenty of studies that have showed that that there's a, a strong correlation between soil carbon matter and yields in soil in uh, crop production. But you know, 40 years ago, people weren't thinking about global warming and uh, carbon dioxide emissions and things like that. So now, now we started to realize, hey, you know, soil is one of the greatest uh, use the term sinks or, you know, places where carbon could be stored, storehouses of carbon. Um, Maybe we ought to be taking a look at at the way we produce food and can we get more carbon into the soil from a a mitigation of 
climate change, really. Yeah. yeah. Did, have you, I can't even remember, were you guys even part of the, the new documentary that's out on Netflix, Kiss the Ground? Um, have you our, seen that yet? Yeah, our chief scientist at the time, Chris Nichols, was interviewed for for the first one. I think, is there another, isn't there a new uh, a second one out or... Oh, I don't know. Or no, maybe just, maybe it just came out because I maybe or maybe I've been aware of it for longer than. Yeah, um, well, working around Hollywood, I know it takes a while for these things to get out into the world. So it might have been made years ago, and it's finally like on Netflix. You know, maybe it was released mm-hmm. in some other format, and and Netflix finally bought it and put it out. And I think it's maybe getting a wider audience. But yeah, yeah. When I hear the new, because yeah, I think I've been aware of it for a little bit now. But, um, but anyway, yeah. yeah. So just a very yeah small a small amount. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a really, uh, I think it just dovetails very well with, with your mission and what you guys are doing. Uh, you know, definitely I, I thought of you uh, when I watched it. Um, so let me ask you a, a big question as a result of these kind of studies that you're doing. Can we feed the billions of humans on Earth with just organic agriculture? Well, yeah, we believe you can. Um, and there's a couple, you know, probably points about it. One is, you know, if you were to apply organic agriculture right now, you know, some people suggest that there's a, a yield drag or you produce less using organic systems. Our, our trial here suggests that it's not true. Um, but if you look at trials, you know, similar trials globally, there does seem to be a reduction in yields um, using an organic system. Um, but a couple things. One is, a uh, majority of our food, at least here in the United States, or I shouldn't say food, majority of our crops don't even go to food. They go to things like ethanol um, production, or that you know they get sent off for other other products. Um, right. So if we devoted most of our acreage for food production, um, we would Any drop we could easily do it. And then yeah. other projections suggest that even if we did change and we we kept everything status quo. We'd have at least till we would be we would be producing at a level that we could feed the world till 2050. Um, and I would also say that we've made such a little amount of investment in time and money in organic organic or regenerative agriculture compared to you know our standard forms of agriculture that we're gonna we're gonna increase yields just through investment in. Uh, I think the biggest thing we need is investment in knowledge and understanding. Um, yeah. People just aren't applying basic agricultural principles um, like crop rotation and use of cover crops simply because they can they have something in a bag that they can use to overcome the fact that you get pest outbreaks when you don't rotate crops or you need when you don't have sources of natural sources of fertility then you need to rely on synthetic sources of fertility and i also think that we're learning that this conventional agriculture is becoming a failed system so I mean, when we look at controlled trials, that's one thing. But if we look and we see that this system is, you know, destroying soil, and then we have to move on to new areas because that soil is completely degraded, um, it's something that I think is not really showing up in the research trials. Yeah, that's that's amazing. Yeah, um, you know, I, thank you for <laughs> answering that. And I and I think that's what's great when I just look at your website which is a fantastic resource uh, that I would turn anybody on to, uh, rodaleinstitute.org. Just if for anything about just trying to understand what regenerative organic agriculture is all about, 
the basis of it. It's fantastic. It's well laid out. It's really clean, very clear. And, and it's easy to rabbit hole. I like to say where you, you start with one topic and for like an hour later, you've clicked, you know, into multiple different links and have learned more than you ever thought you were going to learn. Um, but also you're very open and honest with all the data that you get. So sometimes it's even surprising, like a, like a conventional, the conventional system in the farm system trial might do better in one metric than the other systems. And that's all equally reported. It's not trying, you know, there's, it's literally just facts. It's not uh, biased facts. I mean, obviously you guys come with a perspective and, and an emphasis, um, but it's, I think that's, what's great about it. It's really, it's real honest and open source of information based on the studies that you're doing. Very scientific, of course. Um, I appreciate you saying that. If you don't mind me comment, I, I can't. No, please. Thank you for coming on our website. Um, although I, I can't take any credit for that whatsoever, <laughs> but we have a great communication staff that does that. But I think it's worth impo- it's worth pointing out that, you know, our our CEO, Jeff Moyer, often points out, you know, we don't sell anything. We, get, we have the worst business model in the world. You know, we give everything away for free. Um, yeah. And that's our goal. And the only thing we have is our reputation. Yeah, you know, we we're, we started an organic organic consultancy, and we sell nothing. I mean, they walk onto your farm; these consultants walk on the to your farm with one purpose, and that's to help you uh, improve your farming by becoming organic, with the goal of getting a price premium, uh, improving their land base, and becoming you know more profitable and successful. Um, but the majority of you know rhetoric and information. They're coming from places that are selling something and, right. you know, and potentially are biased because they are, they, they, they have a strong interest in you believing that organic can't feed the world because with organic, I mean, we're basically saying you don't need as many inputs and therefore, you know, it's these inputs that are getting farmers in debt and leading to uh, the highest rates of suicide in the United States and globally um, that we've seen in any, in any, um, you know, any profession. Wow. So I, I just wanted to point that out that, you know, our reputation and being non-biased and being able to work with uh, collaborators and partnerships is really the backbone of our, of our organization. Yeah, that's great. That is a good point. And I just wanted to transition since this is the organic wine podcast. So obviously the emphasis of the Institute is mainly on annual crops and, and livestock since those are, I'm, I'm, sure by far the largest forms of agriculture in the but um do you have any studies about perennial crops like grapes and how or do you have any sense of how the findings that you of your studies might apply to perennial crops well we have an interest in perennial crops we've we've had an organic orchard for a period of time here um okay. uh grapes although they're starting to increase in popularity in in pennsylvania and areas along the east coast of the united states um have never really um been a major crop. Um, yeah. I personally grow raspberries, blueberries, and blackberries at home, um, and I and I think it's one of the principles of regenerative agriculture that so part of the word you know you've heard we've used the word sustainable, and then uh, J.I. Rodale coined organic, and really Bob Rodale was the person who started using the term regenerative um, to talk about regenerative agriculture, and you know a permanent permanence was one of the one of his principles. Um, and, and he always said, you should apply it to the land. You should apply it to yourself. Um, and you should apply it to your communities and, and spiritual aspects as well. Um, but so that's something that we're looking at. We, we think that that's probably 
you know, critically important, these perennial systems like grapes um, to be able to be in place. And I, we know of some, some vineyards that are uh, doing what we would probably call regenerative organic agriculture. You know, you could, you know, you certainly can be using plants at different times of the year as sources of fertility, like legumes, um, to stabilize soils. Um, you know, maybe it's not advised in grapes, but, you know, for our blueberries, for example, we use a heavy amounts of uh, wood mulch to control weeds, which also provides, um, you know, sources of fertility and, and keeps moisture in. Um, we know of farmers who are introducing livestock into their uh, vineyards and perennial systems. So I think that for a long time, the, the, we were, the barrier was the mechanization and, um, and how to introduce all these things together. Uh, it might even make be better in, in these, uh, perennial systems that are already, you know, using, have higher labor and, uh, you know, there isn't mechanized harvesting and things like that. Yeah. And I, I for sure, the soil science still applies uh, regardless, uh, in terms of the findings of fertility and, and, and just what the, the cover crops and composting and all the other, you know, the lack of chemical inputs to the soil microbiology, I'm sure applies across the board. Um, and, and uh, I wanted to ask you sort of about another study that you're doing. So, you know, in California, we're starting to see a, a conflict between marijuana and grape growers in terms of land usage and all kinds of things. And I've had this idea that maybe the, the conflicts are unnecessary and marijuana or hemp could make a great cover crop in the vineyard. And you happen to be doing studies of using hemp as a cover crop, um, as well as a cash crop, sort of a dual purpose thing, but, but specifically as a cover crop, which I thought was fascinating when I discovered that. And I, I'm wondering if you can talk about what you're finding. And do you think my dream of planting hemp between rows of vines could be a reality? Or have I just been, is that a result of me spending too much time in a state where <laughs> marijuana is legal? <laughs> no, like no. <laughs> yeah. the reality is, is that you're that we're only limited by our mind and our ability to think and think out of the box. I mean, what you're saying is basically alley cropping. It's it's something that people have done for a long time. It's just that we got we we people would have done it, but then they got rid of it. Was you know more efficient to grow one crop and send it off somewhere else than to and to specialize in one thing than have multiple multiple crops. But yeah, we we looked at hemp industrial hemp. So this is hemp that's being used for fiber um, and maybe also for seed and oil production, but not necessarily CBD hemp or, or marijuana. And I mean, the first time we planted on soil that as far as we knew, had never seen hemp, um, although Pennsylvania was a leading hemp producer, so it's possible they grew it here at one time. Um, it just, it grew like 12 feet tall and yeah. more. And we just said, we thought to ourselves, well, there's not a weed on, in here anywhere and everyone who's an organic farmer is thinking about organic knows that weeds are one of the biggest struggles without herbicides. So we planted uh, we planted our cover crop directly into where we had grown hemp without any tillage, um, and then we did a side by side comparison where we did till because even in our we we've we've worked on which you might have found on our website you know we're working on an organic no till system, um, but we still till to establish our cover crops. And because we find if we don't, we have heavy weed pressure the next year in the crops. Um, but anyway, we grew our cover yeah. crop without tillage. We also grew it with tillage. The next year, 
we grew soybeans in those fields without tilling at all in the spring. And our yields, we had almost no weeds and our yields were better than any other place we had on our farm. Um, and, and, you know, we're some of the highest yields we've ever had. And we were just thinking it was either the weeds from the hemp or potentially there's some sort of synergistic interaction that, you know, maybe soybeans or other crops just do really well after hemp. Maybe they, maybe they deep roots break up the soil and improve soil health. We know that they can, hemp can sequester carbon because they have such robust roots. Um, so we've really been following that up. We've, we've continued that trial as well as another trial with Purdue University, which is uh, kind of looking at industrial hemp in a field crop rotation and how that impacts weeds and insects. So I think your idea is great. I think I don't see any reason that there's a, the only barrier is whether we can, you know, harvest it and, and, you know, plant the crops far enough away to harvest and all that stuff. And, and we are looking for, you know, there is a question and, and that we do have a site in California. And that is one of their questions is um, they're working on CBD hemp, but they're also starting a uh, more of an industrial hemp fiber and asking the question, can we do organic hemp for fiber in the United States? Um, since we know that cotton uh, can be difficult, cotton difficult to grow organically. And it also can be, if you're not growing it organic, one of the uh, you know worst contributors to pollution of, of crops. Yeah, that's what I've heard. Yeah. So it could be, hemp could be a great replacement for cotton in terms of textile fiber and everything that cotton is, mm-hmm. which that's. And if it, and if it controls weeds the way we think it could, maybe it could even be work in a rotation with cotton. Huh. Interesting. And does it, I mean, do you ever, have you done trials where you, you literally just like roll and crimp the hemp instead of harvesting it? Like just use it as a, as a green mulch as well? Uh, or, or even plow it under or anything like that or mow it down? Or do, is it always harvested and then plant where it was? Yeah, I think one of the reasons we we haven't is because we look at it as more valuable than kind of, you know, a cover crop or smother crop like you're describing. Right. Um, so we're trying to look at it as a dual purpose. We get the, the weed suppression as, as well as getting, a you know, the valuable value out of it. Um, it's interesting to say that, I mean, there's, there's, I guess the other thing that that to add to that list of things to look at are livestock grazing Mm. on it. There is some thought that there's, it provides a benefit, whether it's by itself or in a mix, um, that all these compounds that it possesses could be beneficial for parasite control and, uh, you know, gut health and things like that could have some very happy cows yeah (laughs) (laughs) no that i mean that sounds fantastic and i i love that i i i'm sure there are many more jokes that could be made but the reality (laughs) of it is fantastic as well um and let me you you another thing that might be of interest to uh grape growers is well I'm, i'm wondering if it is there's a new certification that you guys have started developing called the regenerative organic certification um so sort of a, a step up from organic can you talk about why you felt that was necessary i mean i, I kind of have some ideas but i'd rather like hear it from the source and and is it something that a vineyard, something because I know uh, animal husbandry or animal welfare is a part of that. Is it something that a vineyard who doesn't use animals can 
qualify for or or do you have to be more of a traditional farm to qualify for them? well yeah certainly vineyards apply and, and i think they're perfectly made for vineyards i don't see any reason why every vineyard in the whole world is not certified regenerative organic yeah, um <laughs> <laughs> uh you know the the pillars are you know one the bases you need to be certified organic so you need to follow uh the standards for the current standards for organic um then there's an animal welfare component and a social fairness component. And part of this we recognize is, you know, probably the biggest champion of the current USDA organic standards was Bob Rodale. He was traveling about weekly to, to Washington, D.C. to try to get standards. And he always thought that animal welfare standards and social fairness, you know, treating employees well and people well uh, should be considered um, but it looked like if trying to get them included in the standards would have held the whole thing up. So they kind of let it go without that. Um, but most, most organic farmers that were the, you know, true, you know, pioneers in organic farming considered those important principles of organic farming. Um, so we wanted to include those. And, and then the other thing is there's a lot of the brands that we talked to said, you know, I'm, I've got, I, I have like 20 different labels to show that I'm doing the right thing. Um, and, I think there's a, some misconception of organic. You know, if you buy an organic shirt, uh, you 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 there's something you're, you're paying more for it, and there's a story that comes to it. You feel good about the fact that you've bought an organic shirt. Um, but if you found out that you know child labor was used to pick that cotton or to, to weed those fields, uh, suddenly maybe you don't feel so good about paying for that shirt. Right. Um, so we really thought the regenerative organic certification. Uh, added those components to to make it clear. Um, certainly, there's some parts of the uh, the current standards that we might disagree with that that we wish would be changed. I mean, they they might with a different administration or over time. Um, but so you know, some of those and some of those were around animal standards, and we actually think that a lot of really hardworking organic farms um, are struggling to be competitive in a marketplace because the organic standards aren't being, you know, the letter, they're not being, uh, being implemented as, as intended. And some of those farmers could become regenerative organic right away because their practices are, you know, meet all the standards. And then that might help them to capture, um, an increased price premium for their product or differentiate themselves, um, in the marketplace. But the, we think of regenerative agriculture as, um, a way to initiate continuous improvement. And the way the, you know, the way the standards are written now, I mean, you know, we, we, we support and, and think that organic standards is really important in the industry. Um, but it's really kind of like you set up, you set a bar and you say, as long as you can jump over this, um, then you're good to go. Um, but that's kind of boring. I mean, if you watch the Olympics and just set one bar in the high jump and didn't continue to increase it to see who could, you know, who could uh, win and jump over the highest, it wouldn't be very exciting. Um, and so you move from a bronze to a silver to a gold. So as you improve your soil and you improve your practices, um, you can, you know, it provides an incentive for you to actually, you know, add more conservation practices, add pollinator habitat, add riparian buffers, you know, show that demonstrate that you're improving the health of your soil uh, demonstrate that you're doing things to reduce tillage. Um, and then you can move from one step to another. And, and because, you know, tillage is one of the, 
I think one of the barriers that, that farmers are going to face, that's why I say I think it's perfect for perennial systems like vineyards. Um, yeah. they, I think they really could meet the gold standard in the regenerative organic certification uh, without, I mean, uh, you know, farming's not easy. So to say it's, <laughs> to do it easily is really not, <laughs> not fair, but I think it's achievable for, yeah. for, for vineyards. That's great. So it does incentivize people to continue to, to strive to to continue to improve and innovate and and experiment with new better practices, which will just ultimately lead to more problem solving for everyone when you have that sort of layered level where you can, can rise up and recognize for doing more and more better and better in those great. And you were sort of you alluded to the fact that this works with, I believe, some of the existing, a lot of the existing certifications, like the animal welfare certifications, the like, I think it's like a live certification. I, I'm, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head from looking at the information about this, but it, it's it's trying to eliminate duplications of these things, right? Can you Absolutely. talk a little bit about that? So, how does that? How does how do those integrate into the overall regenerative organic certification? Right. So, so, you know, I mean, organic farmers are already getting inspected and right. a lot of the inspectors can also be certified to inspect for other, for other things and just organic certification. Um, and we didn't want to try to add more, um, roadblocks. So, you know, if you, if you have an animal welfare certification, if you have your organic certification and you have some sort of social fairness certification, um, you've already done all the work, you're already doing all the work. And you would just need to submit that to your certifier to show that you've been, you know, you've met all those standards. And I'm sure they're going to charge, you know, an extra price on top of it for doing the paperwork and and for an additional inspection. Um, but we think that, you know, a lot of people have already, they're already doing that. So it really doesn't add too much additional work. And then we, and then like we've said, a continuous improvement. We're hoping that some people will say, geez, I'm so close. If I just did X, Y, or Z, in my animal welfare uh, program, then I would, um, you know, this this gives them an incentive to say, "Geez, if I just did this thing or that thing, um, then I would I could actually meet the animal welfare standards, or I could meet the social fairness standards." Um, and and so that we're hoping that it'll, in addition to some people that are already doing it all, it'll cause some people that are actually organic to just maybe have a reason to take the next step and improve yeah. things. Well, I'm so glad this has been done because I, I do think especially, I mean, it, obviously animals do get integrated more and more into the better forms of viticulture um, in terms of, you know, using them to graze, uh, like do, to, to deal instead of using herbicides, you've got a, a flock of sheep that also are fertilizing and, and adding all the benefits of their, you know, walking through the vineyard and pooping and doing all the things that they do. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the i feel like the labor aspect has been so long neglected and is such a you know it's it's so tied to sort of the labor issues that are inherent in migrant labor practices in california and the west coast in general i i think it's just such a needed and wonderful thing to anything that will help improve and and focus attention on that and the importance of it to being part of a holistic system that it's 
you know, we, yeah, I think it's that idea like sustainable. I mean, for a long time, I think organic has been criticized because it doesn't deal with water, you know, like the way water gets treated or the way animals get treated or the way the humans that work in, in those fields get paid and treated. And uh, I think it's just a wonderful thing because those really are all, you know, if you have the, if you have the value of producing organic food, like you said, it's just absurd to think that you could do that in a way that exploits people. (laughs) Um, So I I think it's fantastic. I hope it becomes the new gold standard for uh, certifications, really, um, and and literally and figuratively. Um, And, you know, I've already mentioned your your website, uh, rodaleinstitute.org, and I do hope people check that out. Um, I mean, it's becoming clear to more and more people, as you said, pretty much everybody now, that the problems you guys are trying to solve at the Rodale Institute aren't just about better farming, but about human survival. Um, As someone like you at the front lines uh, facing some of the largest problems we have through agriculture, you know, through an agricultural perspective, can you send us off with any any hope, (laughs) any (laughs) anything that, you know, we can cling to as positive changes that you might see coming? or happening already, or ways that we can make changes? Right, yeah, thanks for using that word hope, because I think it is a message of hope, and that's that's really what, I mean, I don't know if it sounded like that way through the interview, but, you know, what we're looking for is solutions, not not pointing out the problems. Um, and, and you can, it's a, we're at a real turning point. I mean, you can really see that there's a real turning point. People are recognizing that we need to do things differently, um, you know, I think we're getting to a low point on chronic disease in this country where we just can't possibly um, continue down the road that we're going. We need to change. We need to, you know, produce healthier food. People need to eat healthier. Um, we need to change our lifestyle. And I, and I think we're, we're on that road. Um, I hope we're on that road. Um, but yeah, I, there's been just real interest recently. And, and so I, I think uh, that, you know, we're really starting down that road even though it's been uh, over 70 years since we've been walking that journey, others are now starting to, to take the walk with us. That's great. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for, you know, helping us uh, understand a little bit more about what you're doing. And I'm, you know, very excited by the work that you're doing. We could probably talk for a long time because <laughs> I'm fascinated by everything that you're doing. Um, but I really appreciate your time. Thanks so much for coming on and talking yeah, through. And, and thank great. you so much for the opportunity to, to be on and talk with you today. Absolutely. My pleasure. Uh, keep up the good work. We'll look All right, thanks so to much. See more. Absolutely. Thank you.